Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 138. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with two fascinating people who are the authors of two books that you are going to hear all about. Today, I'm talking with Rebecca Williams, PhD, and Julie Kraft, LMFT. Rebecca and Julie, thanks so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Thanks for having us, Laura. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm very excited that you're here. So you are the authors of two books together. Your new book is The Gift of Recovery, 52 Mindful Ways to Live Joyfully Beyond Addiction. And then your previous book is The Mindfulness Workbook for Addiction, A Guide to Coping with the Grief, Stress, and Anger that Trigger Addictive Behaviors. That's right. You've got them both. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just start off with, if you would, both of you telling our audience a bit about yourselves and what you do. Sure, I'll tackle that one first. I'm Julie Kraft. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist uh, here in California. Um, So primarily, I'm looking at the relational side of things, kind of what I try to bring to the table in our books, um, thinking about how um, addiction uh, relates to relationships and how relationships affect addictive behaviors. Uh, So I have a private practice here in San Diego and also teach a course over at the University of San Diego called Systemic Treatment of Substance Abuse. So we look at the family system a lot. Uh, And I've been working with Rebecca closely for quite some time, too many years to talk about probably. (laughs) Um, Even before I was a licensed therapist, um, she was a a mentor to me for a long time, uh, starting over at at the University of San Diego in my graduate program. And then we worked together at the VA here in San Diego as well. Yeah. And that's, yeah, Julie and I met at the VA. I've been a licensed psychologist for 20 years. I'm here in San Diego. Actually, I spent all the whole time at the VA San Diego. Um, and also I've had different types of jobs like private practice and teaching at the University of San Diego, um, primarily as a licensed psychologist. And I run a clinic at the VA here 
uh, helping veterans return to employment, veterans who have medical conditions, mental health conditions, trauma, uh, substance abuse recovery. We're trying to get folks back on their feet and back out into the working world. Awesome. So how did you two decide to write your first book together? How did that come about from from their relationship? Yeah, um, that's just it. When you asked that, I had a very clear picture of the moment that Rebecca <laughs> mentioned it to me. It was something that um, Rebecca had been uh, envisioning, I think, for some time and um, and was my uh, supervisor over at the VA. And she and I were working closely together on, in our clinical work. And, um, you know, she knew I had a strong interest in uh, substance use and abuse. So, um, she, yeah, she had been cooking up this idea of the connection between loss and addiction and really the power of loss in someone's life and how much um, that was really a factor in uh, in addiction. And she had felt at the time that, I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot before you, yeah. I remember this so much, yeah. um, but, you know, she really felt like there was a gap in the literature um, in regards to loss. Uh, when she was doing her own you know, literature search in terms of substance abuse. Um, so she just asked me if I might be interested, and I really was. Uh, so that's how we got started. Yeah, exactly. I saw a spark in Julie uh, pretty much from the beginning. She's a phenomenal clinician and just an all-around awesome person. So I wanted to, you know, when you work with someone, when you co-write books or you just co-anything together, you've got to like the person a <laughs> yeah. lot. It helps because it's a long journey. And and I remember saying to Julie, um, I have this idea about uh, I'm trying to figure out what loss has to do with recovery from addiction and why my clients continue to continue to do the same behaviors over and over again. Um, and I believe loss is involved in that. And I said, you don't have to say yes now. Think about it because it's a five-year commitment to write a book um, from beginning to end. Uh, and it does take a you know, a relationship that's going to sustain five years at least. So she thought about it and she was excited. And, and then it went really from there pretty quickly. We yeah. kind of we kind of got a good vibe going and we uh, started writing the contract uh, for the book for New Harbinger and they accepted it fairly quickly. And then we were on the way to make it happen. That's awesome. Five years to write a book? Gosh. Well, you know, I when I say a five-year relationship, it takes about door-to-door about 18 months to write a, book, a self-help book. I don't know what other books are like, but mm-hmm. this book and our both of our books, it's about 18 months from door-to-door. Mm-hmm. However, after that, there's things like your show, Laura, mm-hmm. the, the podcast and other marketing to keep mm-hmm. the book in the front of people for another couple of years at least, if not longer forever um, you hope yeah forever yeah but but even that just keeping it going it's like a little train that could you have to keep working <laughs> at it and so julie and i probably email back and forth three or four times a day especially in the marketing phase and also in the work phase she would write a chapter send it to me i would edit it relax and then i would send it back to her and vice versa that went on for a year so it's it's quite a process Wow, it is. I've been tracking it for myself timeline wise because we started discussing this book, The Gift of Recovery, uh, and whether we were ready to to tackle a second book when my uh, younger son was just about two months old, and he's (laughs) turning two next week. So, and and the book just came out. So it was that basically his his lifetime so far. (laughs) We've been working on it. Yeah. Wow, wow. That's that makes sense. 
but thanks for sharing, you know, how long it really takes and what it's really like, because people are always like, maybe I'll write a book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think about that, too. It's like, if I were to write a book, how would I even be able to do it? And then, you know, just having a realistic example of how long it takes is helpful. Yeah. yeah and, and I'm a big fan of co-authorship and co-writing and just working with bouncing ideas off of someone else. I know people like to work in a vacuum by themselves mm-hmm. and just, I'm going to do this. My experience, our experience has been phenomenal, just being able to bounce ideas off. Some things work, some things don't work, of course. And and to have the kindness of, of someone else reading your work before you send it out to the publisher mm-hmm. um, is much more kind than actually throwing your stuff out there and you're going like, oh, I hope they like it. And <laughs> there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen once it gets to the publisher. A lot of people editing, rereading, changing titles, changing covers. I mean, it's a very... It's a machine, and mm-hmm. um, but to have someone to support in that process is, to me, has been a phenomenal experience. I wouldn't do it any other way. Yeah, I agree. That's cool. That's really nice. Well, so I want to ask you about something you were saying about when Rebecca first mentioned the idea of doing this book, the issue of loss. Can you tell our audience what you're really talking about when you say loss and then how that relates to addiction, what you've kind of come to with that. Yeah. So in the mindfulness workbook for addiction, our first book, uh, we identify loss as basically any time that you've said goodbye to something, uh, which is, was, you know, a bit broad, but we really wanted to do it that way because there were, we, we believe there are a lot of things that people don't identify as a loss that really impacts them that way. So we have a really long hefty list of losses in that workbook for uh, for the reader to kind of check off the list of their experiences. And then, of course, they can identify which were most impactful for them. But really, I mean, something like moving houses or graduating college, you know, some things that, you know, yes, are exciting and are to be embraced and enjoyed. Um, there's also a loss component when there's change. Um, and then, of course, you know, as therapists, we know things like a divorce can be experienced very much like the loss of a loved one. Um, You know, it it needs to be grieved, those kinds of experiences, uh, much like a death. Uh, So there's a whole range. And, of course, um, trauma, all kinds Mm -hmm. of trauma um, on that list, Um, abuse. And, just you know, it it is a significant list. But, yeah, I mean, we really looked at all, all the different factors that we were seeing clinically that our clients were experiencing as a loss. Yeah. And the loss was, uh, it's like a cycle. The loss of our clients uh, was perpetuating a further addiction. And an addiction, of co- as you probably know, Laura, causes additional losses mm-hmm. because you're losing relationships, you're losing jobs, you're losing money, you're losing, um, you know, your freedom health, if freedom if you're incarcerated. Right. Um, so for, for me, because I've been thinking about loss for so long, uh, I think it really has, if I can go a little personal for a second, uh, it had to do with my mom gave a, gave a child up for adoption many, many moons ago. And I knew in the household something wasn't right, but I didn't know what it was. So I grew up with a mom who really was struggling with that decision. And then she, of course, chose alcohol as a way to cope with her decision making and her, her struggles. And I was a part of that. So I always knew that there was something going on. And I think that's that was the germination of my experience with be, living with someone who had a traumatic loss and did not 
fully grieve it and used alcohol and other and, and cigarettes, of course, um, to handle her emotions. So that was my experience. And that's how this whole, for me, this whole idea came to be. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that in your personal story. And that, you know, that, that really makes sense. And I think about the idea that's being um, discussed lately about addiction, that it relates to attachment wounds and loss is an attachment wound, right? Especially if it happens in childhood. Exactly, Laura. That's perfectly well said. And that's what we're noticing in our clients continually. And the research is very scant on understanding attachment loss and addiction or Mm-hmm. In general, no one wants to touch this topic. You know, it's, it's kind of a talking about loss is, is kind of tricky and people tend to shy away from it. So, yeah, um, that seems to be the case with pretty much all the most painful things in our society. We just don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, as we talked today, there have been two celebrity suicides this week and a new report that suicide is increasing in the U.S., came out yesterday, I believe. And, you know, it's like, it's impossible to, we can try to ignore the pain that people are feeling, but, you know, it's the examples of what happens when people are in all this pain that they feel like they can't escape from are everywhere. Exactly. Those two suicides, this last week in the celebrity um, circles, both of those, from my understanding, had a relationship with a loss of a relationship. So um, Mm. uh, one was a potential divorce and the other one was a loss of a relationship. And that is, as we're saying, that is a huge component to be able to cope with but there are there are there is hope out there and there are ways to cope with loss. And that's why we wrote these books to actually give people a lot of hope and a lot of encouragement to kind of just, as you say, tackle the rough, the rough things and realize that there's support in place, including the um, suicide prevention hotline number one 800 I know it by heart. So, yeah. Thank you for adding that. And I'll be sure to put that into the show notes as well. And yeah, there is hope. And, and I think that talking about painful things like trauma, loss, a painful childhood, addiction is a painful thing to talk about. But it's also, it doesn't help it get better by just pretending it's not there. Yeah, I just, you know, thinking in terms of the recent suicides and what we're talking about here, I don't know why, but social media is really coming to my mind right now. Because I think so much of our world right now is very public, much like a celebrity's world is often very public, but people's pain remains very private and people are very isolated in their pain. Um, so when we think about attachment and addiction and attachment and, and depression, I really do feel like attachment is lacking, like quality attachments in our world are really lacking as much as we are connected, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, 
use social media, you know, in other ways that feel a little bit more surface, like your, your best self, your happy self, your happy vacations, your, all these things are really posted right out there for the world. But a lot of what's going on, like your substance abuse issues, for example, are kind of tucked away behind the scenes. And it, it feels like a greater and greater disconnect between what's really happening and what needs to be uh, addressed and connected with and supported is somehow increasingly private and separated out from our like public persona. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying, you know, and we, we talk often about how um, what you see on social media is not real, but it's still the, if that's all you know of the person and they're presenting a certain image, that's what you think is their reality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just the, you know, social comparison is extremely normal, right? It's, you know, it's a way that we've adapted to survive. If you look around and see, you know, what's everybody else doing? What are they eating? What's, you know, what's happening in my uh, cohort here? Um, and, and pay attention to that and then uh, look at yourself and compare. It's just really normal to do. Um, but when what we're comparing ourselves to is this image of everybody else seems like they're doing great, can be a really lonely place to be. Agreed. Yeah. So, you know, from what you said, when you first introduced yourself, you mentioned how you bring the relational piece into this. And, you know, everything we're talking about so far is relationships, really. Yeah. And, and the relationship with yourself. And I think that's what's cool about mindfulness that we added to both books joyfully, uh, is to really kind of slow the train down a little bit and reconnect, number one, with yourself. In this fast-paced world, it's extremely difficult to do. To, and that's why the gift of recovery kind of gives you kind of a day-by-day, week-by-week reconnection with yourself. Um, once you get yourself kind of, you know, cooled down, then you're more able to interact with your relationships, your family, your friends, work. But if everyone is working on like this nerve ending, you know, mm-hmm. way of being, it's it's very difficult to interact with other people. You just kind of go in very irritable and you come out irritable. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're trying to convey and help other ourselves and other people to slow down, to breathe, to reconnect with yourself and um, and make space for it. That's pretty much to me everything. Once we get that then addiction recovery is a natural progression. Yeah. So I agree with you so much when you said that connection with yourself is, is so important. And oftentimes, you know, we are so focused on making connections with other people, but we really are disconnected from ourselves. And so then we can't have deep, meaningful relationships with other people because we don't really even know who we are. Where this all started and there's an opportunity, especially with your podcast, you've had a, a couple great other son who are talking about yoga and meditation and mindfulness. I mean, the direction you're taking is terrific and uh, not just for clients, but mostly for clinicians who are seeing a lot of people and um, trauma and, and distress to be able for the counselor to slow themselves down and to reconnect with their own self and their own values. Um, so it's a, it's a journey. <laughs> yeah. And it's one that we constantly, that's why they call it a practice, right? You have to continually practice. So some, mm-hmm. something you said in your book, in the newest book, is that meditation isn't always pleasant and it's not always comfortable. And I'm thinking about how when people 
stop using substances and begin to be in recovery, they're experiencing all the feelings that they were numbing before. So true. (laughs) Yeah. And then meditation is, it doesn't take you away from those feelings. It may take you more into them. Yes. uh, That's been my experience. Uh, In fact, at the beginning of my meditation journey, I was really anxious and angry, uncomfortable, confused, Uh, all those feelings, just because it was quiet, they all kind of popped to the surface. Yeah. And um, I didn't want to continue. I was like, what's the point of this? And uh, I just kept going back to my little cushion. First, with all my accoutrements around me, I, I brought my newspaper and my cereal and my coffee with me up to my little yoga area, my meditation area. And eventually I slowly got rid of all of the distractions around me. And what I had left was kind of a slowly going toward some peace of mind. And it takes time. I mean, it could take quite a bit of time Mm -hmm. to actually have the feeling of a calm mind. It's not going to be automatic, but every part of the journey is an important part of the journey for meditation. Yeah, I I definitely just want to emphasize how much that's been my experience too. And I've had certain times where I've encouraged clients to listen to a guided meditation. And when we listen to it together in the session, and then I would ask the client what their experience was like afterwards. And they would say, it was terrible. This, you know, these images started coming to my mind. I just started thinking about all these things that happened to me and I, you know, I guess I was doing it wrong. And it was like, well, sounds like you were doing it right. But, you know, you, (laughs) but what came was all this stuff that, you know, your brain has been trying to let you know about, you know, that you want to push away. And, you know, I mean, I wasn't happy that they had that distress when it came up. I wasn't glad that happened to them, but when it happened, they thought that meant, oh, i I'm doing this wrong. I need to stop. And really, man, I, wow, you got mindful and that's what's in there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much about just paying attention and greeting what arises. So that's a word that we use a lot in the gift of recovery is kind of greeting or inviting or introducing yourself to whatever arises in the moment in that experience, uh, including all, all the emotions, whether we identify them as pleasant or unpleasant, uh, of just kind of, you know, sitting with those and letting yourself say hello um, and, you know, connect a little bit and be curious about that experience in that mindful way, rather than what a, a lot of people have as the instinct is, you know, absolutely not. I just won't feel this. How do I not feel this? Uh, which is where the addiction can certainly come in. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we all have an inner bully, um, as Julie has written about in Gift of Recovery, the sort of inner part of us that is constantly judging ourselves Mm -hmm. and not in the best of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, you know, part of mindfulness is noticing that inner bully and just giving it some some compassion, saying, you know, I see that you're there. I hear you. It's okay. Um, You're going to be all right. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be all right. And um, just allowing the experience to just flow without the pressure of reacting to to your inner, inner bully. Yeah. Therapist, we've all had that moment. 
you wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. Yeah, we all have that inner bully or inner critic. And I think um, what meditation does for me is just gives me a little bit of space between hearing that inner voice or feeling an emotion that I don't like and saying, oh, something's wrong. I shouldn't be feeling this. Let me try to push it away. Just a little bit of space and go, oh, look what's here, you know? So I would like to ask you to, if you would kind of talk about how the book is organized, I think it's really cool and how it's meant to be used because I think it's really accessible and there are you know, each chapter is bite-sized and, but packed with resources at the same time. Yeah. Thanks. That's exactly what we were going for. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just feel like it's so important for people when they're picking up a book that is a, a self-help book to really be able to digest what they're reading and really be able to sit with it and, and learn from it and grow from it, you know, without feeling overwhelmed by it either. So uh, we did choose the, you know, the 52 chapters intentionally thinking of it as potentially a weekly reader over the course of a year in recovery. Um, And of course, you can move more quickly or more slowly depending on what fits for you. But we do have this idea of kind of reading a chapter and digesting that and sitting with it over the course of a week, um, journaling about it and practicing it from day to day. And then, of course, at the end of every chapter, we did a daily affirmation. So there's seven affirmations for each topic that each day there would be something that you would kind of focus on and try to draw in and really um, allow yourself to grow with. Uh, So that was kind of the thinking, um, you know, maybe in the the first year or in any year, really, in recovery, um, that you'd be able to work through the book and get as much out of it as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we wanted it to be friendly. Um, from men or women or teenagers, or we uh, our other book is is in prisons in in their in their um, treatment programs across the country in in jails and prisons where they're doing recovery hopefully, and also it's in hospitals and recovery centers and that's the goal of this book is if you're in a recovery center um, to actually give yourself the space to do a mindfulness break during during your your recovery time in the in the recovery center so the design is intentional to make sure it can be picked up that people like to look at it that people like to hold it that people we have some downloadable meditations which are very fun we've never done that before i think there are 10 of them that people can hook into and there's also a downloadable affirmations packet that people can um, gravitate to if they want to do that. So it's kind of something for everybody. Yeah, I love it. You have a beautiful meditation in every chapter. 
and some of them are downloadable so that people can listen to them. But, you know, I think when I'm reading a book, I like to, if I wanted to do the meditation, I would want to not be looking at the book. So for me, I would like to record the meditation for myself and then be able to listen to it on my phone while I'm meditating or something so that, you know, I don't have to grab the book and find the page and get out of my mindful state. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great idea. I never thought of uh, having your own voice record your own meditation from the book. That's a great idea. We have a a professional who's recorded 10 of the meditations. Yeah. But I really, I really like the idea of having your own voice do the meditation. What a, what a good idea. Yeah. I've done that with clients where it's actually my voice and Mm -hmm. they record it on, on their phone, which I think is a nice thing to also to have your therapist voice um, that you're so familiar with and it's uh, Mm -hmm. hopefully a source of comfort and support uh, in your process. So, um, but yeah, something about having your own voice is also really lovely to kind of take ownership of that. Yeah, both. I think that the therapist voice can be really great too. And, and, you know, and you do have the audio downloads for many of them, but I think I probably just thought of that because I'm a podcaster and I'm always recording my voice anyway. So it's like, oh, I could, I could record these. I would like to hear these read out in my own voice and listen to them. (laughs) Very, very wonderful idea. Yeah. (laughs) But how does this book work together with your other book or does it? Yeah, we think of this one as building off of the first book to a certain degree. Um, not that you, you know, not that it doesn't stand alone. Um, but I think having a workbook, you know, the mindfulness workbook for addiction is a lot about putting pen to paper. Um, a lot about you know completing these exercises in the workbook. Um, really writing things out and doing the checklist and you know, looking at some of what was going on underneath the addiction, um, the loss addiction cycle that uh, Rebecca touched on and having you really get a grasp on where the losses were, how they were um, influencing the addictive behaviors, and then how the addiction was actually causing more loss in your life and really getting a handle on all of that. And then for this book, I feel as though um, it, it's really like, a, a, again, a companion to that. So kind of offering like, all right, now you've done a lot of this hard work to look at things underneath and to facilitate your initial recovery. Let's give you a, a companion, you know, someone to kind of hold your hand for the next year or, or you know, however long you want to engage with this book and really keep walking the path of recovery. And just, you know, I think of this book, The Gift of Recovery, a lot about cultivating joy, cultivating peace, and really developing a life in recovery from addiction that is really fulfilling. Um, Because I often talk to clients and patients at the hospital where I used to work about, about getting sober, and a lot of people feel like that is bleak. That is the end of joy and the end of calm because the substance or the addictive behavior was what was providing any sense of pleasure or peace um, when they were addicted. So really this book is just kind of a celebration of what sobriety and recovery can look like and just really happy, wonderful life that's waiting in recovery from addiction and just, you know, all, all the different things that you can continue to do to feel really joyful moving forward. Hmm. That's interesting. Cause I think that in my experience and from talking with, people about their experiences, which I'm not a substance abuse counselor, so I don't have the experience that you two have. But I've I've I kind of got the picture that a lot of people are seeking joy and peace through 
their addictive behaviors, but not finding it. It's more of a, I'm hoping this will dull my pain. I mean, I know sometimes like maybe there's more, you might feel a little more relaxed or something when when someone uses, but you can find relaxation when you're not using. That's real relaxation, you know? I don't know. It's like, to me, the clarity is where the you can tap into the joy and the peace. Absolutely. It's, you know, being in recovery, it's a much more authentic state of joy and authentic sense yeah. of peace. And of course, any kind of spiritual transformation, like I believe that can only happen when you're not under the influence of a substance, really. But when I think about dopamine, what I know about the brain, yeah. a meth user you know, what they're going to experience in terms of a dopamine release and that high when they're using uh, is going to be really hard to come by in early sobriety or really ever. I mean, that's not a natural state. So while there is, of course, unbelievable pleasure and wonderful things, only, you know, not only, but (laughs) mostly wonderful (laughs) things waiting in, in recovery, I really do believe that there's a better way to live. There is a lot, a great deal of loss that that people experience when they give up their addicted life because it's it was you know something that they identified as the only bright spot was you know in their life at that time was when using. Yeah. Okay. That that definitely sounds also rings true for me. I just wasn't thinking about that. I guess like there's that intense surge of sensation that comes with some drugs. Um, mm-hmm. that people feel that they don't feel they would be able to have that feeling again if they are sober and they probably won't, but the general feeling throughout their lives as their lives settle down and they get more connected with themselves and their own emotions, you can experience more of the, the highs and lows of life, but be able to tolerate them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's, you know, it would be great if we could all, you know, experience the highs of you know, let's say cocaine with absolutely no consequence, right? Yeah. If there was no consequences for using substances, I think many of us would say, okay, like, great. I just get to feel really, you know, up for a while, or I have more energy, or uh, maybe in the case of benzos or alcohol, I, you know, I'm no longer stressed. I just feel calm, right? Oh, okay. Everything feels kind of easy. Like, you know, when you've got a couple glasses of wine or something and there was no fallout from that, it would be a different picture. Substances, you know, there's an absolute consequence, particularly when they become problematic. The, the consequences are perpetual and so, so painful. I mean, they, the recovering life is obviously so much more um, fulfilling and, and fabulous than the addicted life. But, you know, as you and I talk about that very rationally, that's a conversation that looks really different with addicted clients because that does not feel real to them. The recovering life does not feel appealing to a lot of people. It's scary, it's mm. new, and it's a lot to give up. They might be giving up friends and like everyone they know is at the bar, you know, uh, their family members uh, maybe using with them. There's a lot to navigate there. Mm. So it's it's a big adjustment. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for going a little deeper on that and helping me think about that more. So one thing I'm wondering is whether these two books are useful with other addictive behaviors, or you might say self destructive behaviors like eating disorders or, you know, other, in addition to substance abuse addiction, substance addiction issues that people are struggling with that that sort of follow a similar path? Yeah. You know, we, we have heard back 
from people who use the first workbook uh, as well. I think this will be another uh, wonderful addition to people's clinical libraries. But for eating disorders, it's a big deal. And it's a, I'm glad you brought that up, Laura, because our book is being used in eating disorder clinics, in fact, here in San Diego. Uh, and then the other area, of course, is a gambling addiction. There's porn addiction. There's internet addiction. <laughs> there's so many things. Um, shopping addiction. We won't go there. Uh, <laughs> But uh, no, I, I do think just this is just life recovery. I think we have to all think of ourselves as it, it's stressful out there. There's going to be ups and downs. There's certain things you need to do to come back to yourself to be well. And what Julie and I believe in is the resilient mind and the resilient um, person. It takes kind of a daily practice to be resilient and be well and be strong. And you will have ups and downs. So any behavioral addiction um, needs to be looked at from a compassionate place and, you know, really try to focus on the beginning of recovery. And that's why, like you said, Laura, it's a day-to-day reflection of how to be well for today or how to be well for this hour, you know, especially during this week, for some reason, it was kind of a rough week for people who are, who have mental illness and are thinking about tough things. So it's, it's a life thing. It's not just a addiction thing, I, I believe, this this recovery thing. Yeah, and I you know, I really think the addictive process is all around us. So it's certainly mm-hmm. eating disorders follow such a, a very similar process. Um, and then you know, Rebecca and I have both taught at the University of San Diego at the graduate level um, in a substance abuse class and we have the students uh, give something up for twenty eight days, something that they feel somewhat attached to, something that's kind of a regular part of their life. So some of them will uh, give up caffeine or sugar, um, desserts, or some of them. Many of them have been choosing things like social media um, or texting while driving, just things that are quite habitual for people. Um, and there is an addictive process that underlies a lot of what we do in our lives right now: smartphones and, and social media and all of this. Um, so the students, I it's absolutely fascinating to go through the sense of loss, the being mad at us as professors that we're making them do this, some of them relapsing, some of them wanting to lie about relapsing, which is obviously really common in, in recovery groups, um, and you know, not being honest about that and kind of being, becoming sneaky about the behaviors and uh, urges to use and all this. I mean, it's all the addictive process that we see uh, with substance abusers and gambling addicts. It really plays out in this kind of microcosm of the classroom. And so does the recovery where they find, um, I have them do like check-in groups in the class where they have like maybe four students that check in for the first few minutes um, and they develop really strong bonds around recovering together and they text each other outside of class like, how are you doing without your caffeine? And um, they reflect in their papers on this, just how powerful it is to have that recovery group, how important it was to have that accountability. So really everything that we're seeing with our clients kind of plays out there. So I think, again, I do agree with Rebecca, I feel like the book, um, you know, just the coping skills and the, the hopefulness that we tried to put into both books, I think could be helpful for, for many people. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I did notice that there was some discussion of mindful eating and, you know, your connection with your body and movement, yoga and recovery, self-compassion, all of those things really grabbed my attention. And I think that it seems very applicable to many experiences. Yeah, and I I would love to emphasize yoga and recovery and yoga in general. I mean, it is I've been a 
practitioner of yoga for 34 years. I used to, I'm a certified teacher as well as a student. And um, I believe that that has helped me as a psychologist stay in the game for for over 20 years. Um, The ability to kind of keep coming back to the mat, especially for folks in recovery, to have a place to go back to with a teacher is awesome. To really reconnect with body, mind, and spirit. Uh, So everyone's going to do something that works for them. And this book has a ton of different ideas, even little small um, meditation techniques, as well as something like yoga, which is a, to me, a lifelong wellness practice. Um, So something for everybody really with um, each of these 52 idea, idea chapters. Yeah. I love it. Can you talk a little bit about your chapter on PTSD and recovery? And especially with you, being at the VA, I sense that you probably see a lot of PTSD, as I do in my practice. Yeah, Laura, thanks for what you do out there in the world of PTSD and trauma recovery. We appreciate it. You know, yes, I have seen a lot of PTSD over the last 20 years. What can I say? Um, self-compassion. That's my answer Yeah. to, to, to PTSD in any form. Obviously, combat veterans versus rape survivors, it, you know, the gamut in terms of military um, experiences. It's really just about uh, an agreement with yourself that you will be in, on the road to be well and to hopefully connect with a provider, uh, clinician, counselor, chaplain that is going to take you some of the way. And then you may have another one to take you a little further. You, in terms of PTSD, I believe folks need help with a professional and and our book is a nice little kind of extra little piece of the puzzle um but there is recovery from ptsd and it's beautiful um i've seen it firsthand many 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 times and i have students that i work with that has have seen it and it's noticeable so we can just offer that there's hope out there for both the counselor and the and the client um on the journey with a, a kind of a blanket of compassion or, around both. Yeah, I think that piece is so important. So I I don't practice EMDR myself, but I often refer clients for EMDR treatment. Eye movement and desensitization reprocessing, uh, very um, heavily research-based trauma treatment, um, which is supposed to um, movement of the eyes back and forth, right? It it gathers um, meant to help move um, memories that are kind of stuck in the short term, help it to move into long-term memory where it where it belongs to prevent um, you know, flashbacks, et cetera. Um, so I always do refer clients, and they have a really powerful response to the EMDR therapy. And But it's a really vulnerable, raw time for them to be going through the EMDR therapy and really targeting the trauma. So I'm sure you see that, Laura, that as you are addressing the trauma, it's, you know, so much is at the surface, so much is yes. happening for that. And yeah, so just really needing there to be as much self-compassion and warmth and calm and um, just that, yeah, you do want that secure sense around your client and being able to kind of ground in this moment and find safety and security. I am here now. I am safe. Um, and really be able to bring that, that mindful spirit um, to the whole process of recovering from PTSD. Yeah, I think that any mindfulness practice that someone already has when they start therapy for trauma 
to heal trauma is um, going to help. It's just going to help make it easier. And, you know, because you're less, you know, mindfulness and a regular meditation practice makes you less reactive. And there's so much that comes up with trauma that your brain automatically reacts to. But if you're meditating regularly, your body is able to regulate itself better. So, you know, I think that I'm glad you put in your book about PTSD and also that you make it clear that these these strategies are helpful for people who have PTSD, but having therapy is important too, because it's not something that people can just heal from on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to convey that the therapist will need to heal too and, and recover day to day as you do, Laura, and other other therapists that are listening to your podcast. What I've done on the way home from work sometimes, I don't work directly with PTSD the way you do, but I, and some of your listeners, but I do have a lot of trainees that are, that are in, in it um, all the time. And the work is difficult and challenging and, and awesome. And sometimes on the way home from work, I put my hand on my heart and I say, it's okay. You've chosen this profession. It's okay. You're okay. And just to kind of give myself a moment of compassion for the, the work I do and the work Julie and I do to, to give that back to the therapist personally. I couldn't agree with you more on that. I feel like it's, um, you know, when you're working directly with people who've experienced trauma all day, it's valuable to try to have practices that you do throughout the day. Because, you know, if I see six clients who all have complex PTSD, that's a lot of holding space for people's stories and witnessing what they've been through that was really horrifying for them and for anybody who went through that. So, you know, you have to find ways to give yourself compassion and, you know, mindfulness practice, like you said, for the therapist is very important. I a hundred percent agree. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's everything really to stay, to stay well, especially um, over the long term, which of course we want great clinicians to be continuing to work in trauma and in substance abuse recovery over time. Um, they have the most, yeah, without burnout, they have the most experience to give. And um, like you said, the, the containing, the holding is very important um, in, in substance abuse recovery and trauma recovery. Yeah. So Let's wrap up by if you guys could tell our audience where they can find your book and more of what you're doing. Sure. Our our books are both on Amazon, um, the Mindfulness Workbook for Addiction. If you click on, I think, my name, you can also get CEU credits through different organizations if if you need them, which is cool. Um, So you'd have to read the book, take a test. You know how that goes. Uh, (laughs) Cool. uh, yeah, so so it's nice if you already get the have the book or are going to get the mindfulness workbook for addiction. It'd be great to get your little CEUs along the way. It's kind of a, a you know two for one thing, and then on I think it's even going to be you know it's, yeah. yeah it should be in the actual Barnes and Noble bookstores now. Yeah, yeah. Amazon always gets it first, but I think it's just Barnes and Noble has it in the stores. It's, yeah, um, and we also have a website for the books mindfulnessworkbook.com. I um, should be able to get more information on both of the books. Yeah. 
and the books are discounted at target.com and walmart.com. So we're, everything's pushing out now. And so one way or another, your, your listeners will be able to find the book hopefully very easily. But thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And I will find that website and just put a link to it in the description of this episode so people can click right on it if they're listening on their phones. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rebecca and Julie. It was a pleasure having you on Therapy Chat today. Thank you for being here to tell us about your work and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It was really a pleasure. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com amazing to start your springtime adventure. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.